the more companies are able to get their feet wet and actually experiment with hearing the customer pain points and implementing on them and really refining and honing the product to that customer. I think those particular startups are the most successful in terms of finding that fit. Now let's come back to the drawing table and figure out how to scale it. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Theriel Ferdowsi. Theriel is a founding general partner at FM Ventures and also an advisor with Berkeley Skydeck, where she invests and advises early stage companies on business strategy, marketing, funding, and product development. Theriel started her career in asset management with Morgan Stanley, and then went on to start her own company, a, fa a fashion social platform that revolutionizes the way we shop. She's also been a founder and CEO for companies such as Vanity Stores and Catwalk App. Ferial is based out of the Bay Area and is an alumnus of Stanford and Santa Clara University. In today's conversation, we talk about her path from founder to investor and discuss her philosophy on how to prepare yourself and your company for building a scalable tech enterprise. Ariel, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure. So I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, we were chatting a little bit before uh, the recording and you mentioned that you've been an entrepreneur. Of course, now you're a partner at FM Ventures, and you're also an advisor, I think, with Berkeley Skydeck. And uh, so you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, and, and I know there's going to be a lot of important lessons in this conversation, but let's get started and learn a little bit about you, if that's okay. Tell us how you got to where you are now. Absolutely. Um, so my journey started out in a very different space, if you were. I, After school, I um, decided to go into luxury fashion management. And so I was promoted to lead Mew Mew's regional on the West Coast, and at which point I realized my political philosophy background was just not equipping me with the right skills. Um, to, to do that. And so I decided to quit my job and pursue my MBA, learn some of the business skills. And when I was finishing my MBA, I, well, throughout my MBA, I um, came across the field of finance and I absolutely loved it. And living in Silicon Valley, I was, you know, being really fascinated by how technology was transforming many industries and fashion was just really behind. And so um, I took my fascination in finance. I pursued um, banking at Morgan Stanley, but the bug in me in terms of really seeing the huge separation between technology and fashion was still, you know, really strong in me, um, pushing me to kind of do something innovative in that space. And so I decided to quit my job at Morgan Stanley and work on an idea that I had in terms of the, um, the backend digital transformation for luxury fashion designers. And just to give you an idea of how behind the industry was, um, we were still using DOS operating systems um, to do inventory management in year 2015. Wow. And so, <laughs> and so um, yeah, 
So we did, I worked on creating the SaaS company. Um, we grew it and we sold it to a private equity firm. Um, and ever since 2018, I've been managing a um, family fund of 10 million. And our, our investment focus has been enterprise SaaS, uh, deep tech, consumer tech, and just a little bit of crypto infrastructure. And at around the same time period, I got um, recruited by uh, Skydeck, Berkeley's uh, accelerator and incubator program to help companies on the consumer technology front. Back then, I think consumer technology was still quite new. And any, I would say anything in the consumer space was a little bit new to Silicon Valley. And that was an area that I had a lot of experience with. And so I kind of, that was my in the door kind of value prop. And then my role kind of got extended in that program. Now I also oversee um, the um, admissions process. And so the selection committee member, we go through 2,500 applications per quarter. And um, that that's kind of like separate from my own fund. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to work with a lot of companies. I It's a huge learning opportunity for me. And I hope that um, startups also find a lot of value from what I have to offer. So there's so much I'd love to dig into there. I, I love that you were able to find this intersection between finance and fashion. Uh, because for, for a lot of the folks that I know in fashion, finance is the last thing they want to talk about. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that's where opportunities come, right? When we're able to bring together those different perspectives and kind of find, uh, find you know, find where they cross and where the gaps are in the marketplace. So I love that. And, you know, I'm working right now. We have a student, a former student, who's a fashion designer, um, Italian fashion designer. And the whole business side is particularly challenging for him. Do you still work with fashion at all? Or, you know, you mentioned, of course, tech and cyber. And of course, that's, an, uh, you know, uh, and um, crypto, which is another hot topic today <laughs> that I'd love to dig into all of those, all three of them. But do you still work with fashion at all? Or is that something that's kind of th that you don't see much of coming out of Berkeley and, and coming to your program? Yes, um, that's a really great question. Uh, to be completely honest, I've had very small exposure to fashion companies ever since my whole journey um, ended. And I would say that it's what you mentioned is just so incredibly accurate. And that's exactly what our company was framed around, designed around um, bridging the two worlds that intentionally or unintentionally just do not talk to one another. And they find each other just so completely foreign. And so we, um, we were basically designing software very specific to these creatives that did not have any interest in learning technology or the financial part of um, side of their business and being able to streamline it so they don't have to hire so many middlemen. Um, what we ended up really focusing on in terms of um, the products we were offering and the company as a whole was really designing that user journey for that creative and for their particular businesses. And so um, to be completely honest, we didn't really you know, extend that relationship in order to like, let's say, fund those particular brands in the future or anything like that, um, though we did work with quite a bit of emerging designers and we got to learn an incredible amount of, about their businesses, their challenges and kind of the industry. 
I do know post-COVID, there was a huge industry kind of consolidation and, um, you know, for, for maybe a better term, cleansing, where um, a lot of brands just either didn't make it, a lot of department stores um, filed for bankruptcy. So it became a very turbulent um, turbulent environment. And I think um, COVID kind of put, uh, fast forwarded everything that was kind of cooking under underneath um, in the deeper, deeper layers of the industry and surfaced it quite faster than it would have been. Um, but I do know that a lot of them are no longer. So, yeah, it's interesting because I think COVID did do that. You know, a friend of mine has something he calls the, um, the empty lake theory, I think it is. And basically he was explaining that one day he was driving by this lake and they had drained it. And there was all this stuff on the bottom, you know, it looked really ugly, but had been beautiful before. It was really ugly. And he was talking about, you know, that from a business perspective, sometimes when sales are down and things are falling apart, those things really kind of bubble up. And that's when, like you said, sometimes it, you know, businesses have a hard time recovering from that. On the other hand, if you're smart and you can start digging, I guess, before, <laughs> before you get to that point, maybe you can avoid it, but, but really interesting and interesting, you know, I'm always very fascinated by industries that are um, challenged or being disrupted because uh, it presents such opportunities. And you mentioned three, crypto, SaaS, and deep tech. Could you talk a little, those are the kind of the three areas that you focus on with, with, um, with your venture group. So could, what, what kind of opportunities are there? And of course, crypto is really top of mind for me today as I see my crypto numbers, go, my investments going way, way down. And it's, uh, well, let's see, we're, we're early May right now and they're looking kind of bad right now. But uh, maybe, you know, what are your thoughts about, about opportunities in those three spaces in particular? Absolutely. Um, and we just just to kind of add on, um, we also do a little bit of consumer technology, um, not so much like consumer packaged goods or anything like that, but the technology itself. Um, yes. So on the deep tech front, we actually find that opportunities, really great IP driven opportunities are, I would say, a little bit harder to find. Um, but they are one once you do find the ones that are really high quality i do think there's a lot of potential because barrier to entry is really high on those particular deals um so just to give you an idea we've done two exits already on um on two companies we funded and they were both in in deep tech and one of them was for example a very niche product for a very niche industry was a um uh, cloud simu simulation software for hardware manufacturing. And so we do find these particular, um, again, like high R&D uh, products that are very IP driven, being um, incredibly successful in their own little niche verticals. Um, in terms of enterprise SaaS, um, we've actually invested in uh, companies that have gone on to raise future rounds from very prominent investors. And a lot of them, I think what we look for is A, the potential of exponential growth and B, are they really, um, you know, solving a very, uh, very relevant kind of problem in, in these um, enterprises or are they just pretty, you know, easily repackaging existing solutions and selling them with a different brand? 
And so we do look for those very unique opportunities um, where the low hanging fruits are, or um, you know, there are clear missed opportunities. And in that, for example, we look for a lot of automation in the future. So robots as service, we look for RPAs, um, any uh, process automation, um, you know, companies kind of innovating on that front. Um, we also have done a few ad tech um, with, with the video monetization platforms where mm -hmm. they place real real time ads inside video games or video streaming. And I I believe that's, you know, these particular technologies could be very category defining for their own segments. Um, and then on crypto, we really focus on crypto infrastructure. So any technologies that enable the use of crypto to be held as an actual asset class by institutions or individuals, or create that pro create an easier process to do that. Um, so that could be anywhere from uh, you know enabling uh, strategists to. Uh, provide access to their strategies for the retail investor or, um, you know, enabling strategies of different risk profiles for the institutional investor. I think there's a lot of opportunity there still as we're in the infancy stages of this market. Mm, very interesting. You know, uh, and we we use these terms, you know, deep tech and crypto and SaaS, um, you know, without really defining them, does does your firm have a particular definition that you use for deep tech uh, that you're looking for, for example? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so anything I'd say in AI, um, in ML, in robotics, um, in blockchain, that's very much IP driven and has a very high barrier to entry in terms of having that unique IP that the technology is based on. So that's what we consider, um, you know, deep tech. Deep tech. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of enterprise SaaS, it could be packaged software solutions, and that could be in different forms. So it could be, for example, um, process automation, where um, let's just assume um, the HR processes, some of like the on employee onboarding processes are completely automated. And, um, you know, the employees handed off to different departments in a particular company uh, with just, you know, a very clear system with very little human intervention um, in, you know, very unique, except for unique cases. Um, so it's these particular areas where, you know, it's a software package solution where it basically creates adds value or creates a lot of automation for a particular industry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on crypto, basic infrastructure. So um, anywhere from, I would say, trading platforms all the way to, again, um, enabling, like creating platforms that enable access to particular strategies or particular algorithms or, um, or even surface layer. So I do know that there is a lot of um, disconnection still today in crypto. So if you are going to, for example, um, invest in, let's say, NFTs, you literally have to, you know, switch back and forth between so many different existing platforms in order to complete one transaction. And so bringing all of this under one roof and enabling an easier access to these particular transactions is where we'd like to get involved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs as well uh, here at the university and through a, a lot of the community programs where I also coach and mentor. And, you know, you're dealing with a lot of uh, very bright, talented uh, founders, business founders, 
who have very deep, um, maybe uh, software engineering knowledge, um, maybe material science or some related area. And, um, you know, having worked with those, I know there are some common challenges that they face. And so um, might be, it might be interesting to kind of talk about some of the common themes that you see. You know, they develop this intellectual property. They deeply understand it. How are their communication skills usually when they're trying to pitch what they're doing? And, and how well-versed are they in understanding how to build startups? And I know you can't be totally generic, but what are some of the common mistakes that you see? That's a really great Or challenges. <laughs> yes, I would say, um, to be completely honest, it depends on the stage of the company. Um, when we first meet them, um, and usually like this is with the really early stages, usually pre-revenue, um, sometimes pre-product, they may have a beta and, um, you know, first time entrepreneur, usually, like you said, they are incredibly technically skilled and gifted in that area. And what they lack is sometimes a very clear vision of what the business value could look like, which is incredibly important for investors to see. So, you know, yes, you have a really great invention and you have a really bright idea, but what does this translate to in terms of a long-term business, um, you know, scale or, you know, product roadmap perhaps. Um, so that's sometimes what they're missing. And um, usually what, happens is with a little bit of coaching to kind of see the longer term vision or perhaps add additions like business additions to their teams help helps them develop that muscle a little bit more or perhaps kind of find a co-founder that actually can help them grow that vision into something a lot more tangible. Um, I think that's one area. Second area that I see, especially on um, the Skydeck front where we, you know, it's it's a very open program in terms of providing a lot of access to companies and allowing them to kind of take direction as they see fit for themselves. Um, but usually what happens is a lot of companies that don't necessarily have a clear vision leave these types of programs even more confused than they first arrive, um, only because, you know, you do get to speak with a lot of advisors, a lot of investors from different walks of life and with very, very different backgrounds. So if you don't, as a founder, if you don't have that very clear conviction and understanding of what problem you're solving and why, and what does that look like as a company in the future? I think with every little piece of advice, you can kind of find yourself being pulled in so many different directions that ultimately is detrimental to your company. That is so true and such a great point. I think it's it's very challenging, I think, uh, because uh, entrepreneurs and, and, and experts in entrepreneurship, as we know, usually have very strong perspectives on what needs to be done. And multiple coaches along the way can be extremely valuable, but they can also be, it can also be very challenging. And a lot of that is learning how to be not only coachable, but also how to uh, how to kind of build your own self confidence, right? Your own self efficacy around knowing what to do. Uh, do you do any kind of training with your entrepreneurs, or recommend any kind of training to help them deal with some of those, shall we say, maybe softer skill skills of understanding how to be coached and and you know when to 
take advice and how to step back and evaluate and reflect and things that may seem kind of obvious, but when you're in the middle of a challenging effort like launching a company can can really derail you, I think, like you pointed out. Do you all do any coaching along that line about how to be coachable? Um, absolutely. So I think, A, um, we choose to work with a certain profile of entrepreneurs that are really open to that feedback because I do firmly believe that that kind of core personality also has a lot to do with, um, you know, how coachable a person could be in the future. Um, so that's one part of it. And second is on a regular basis, we do touch points and we have a really um, feedback driven system where you kind of come back to the drawing table and say, okay, well, if, the, if your goal was to, let's say, speak to X many investors this week or X many advisors this week, and kind of grab all that feedback and see, are we, you know, on the right track? Are you going in a different direction in terms of pitching? Are you, do you have enough content in your pitch decks? Do you have enough substance in terms of what you're presenting? Um, and we basically adjust on that. And I think a lot of the teams that we work with, once, once we talk through some of these um, items or some of the feedback that they are continuously receiving, um, I think it pulls out a lot of clarity for the entrepreneurs as well, which is an interesting kind of um, system to watch unfold uh, because a lot of them, you know, may have thought about it in their own head, but once you talk through it and they talk out loud about um, certain, you know, topics that continue to come up, perhaps concerns, perhaps feedback, um, or perhaps, you know, product development roadmap, et cetera, um, or revenue streams, potential revenue streams, they start to even think about, um, you know, perhaps different directions that they never ever thought about or um, different opportunities that they never thought about. So I think through this dialogue, through this, um, you know, conversation on a regular basis, they kind of see us as a partner to say, okay, well, you know, let me bounce this idea with her and kind of see how that goes in a team environment where it's really safe to fail. It's safe to share ideas. It's safe to kind of talk about rejections and then what can we learn from it and move forward, right? That's, that's, I think that's so smart. And part of my, uh, part of the challenge, I think, is, is what you said early on is, and that is figuring out the kind of founder you can work with. Do you, do you use assessments? Do you use extensive interviews, um, references? What, what do you do to really try to figure out if they're a good fit for um, FM Ventures or for the, the Berkeley Skydeck program? Um, that's a really good question. Um, okay, so with, with Skydeck, what happens is we usually get to work with the companies for the entire cohort. And so during that, you kind of get to really feel what the founders are like and their what their working style is like and who is really open to receiving and implementing feedback and who is just really like set in their own head in terms of what the right approach is. Um, in terms of our deals, the deals that come outside of um, Skydeck, what usually happens is um, we kind of start giving feedback on a regular basis, even like at the initial stages of, um, of our conversations and kind of watch, um, I was, I would just say subconsciously what happens once, you know, you kind of put the feedback first and foremost in a conversation and how 
the founders receive that. And I think that's a really good indication of, okay, um, what is, like, what's the dynamic going to be moving forward? And then I do think that once you give that feedback and what happens in the consecutive um, meetings after that feedback session um, is really important because, you know, you touch base and one feedback has been a concern that continues to come up for me personally, or perhaps me and multiple other investors. Um, and if the entrepreneur just really doesn't address that in any way in like consecutive meetings, I don't know if there is a point to continue that conversation. Um, so we kind of watch for these um, really subtle signs of um, of the per- the person being the right personality for us or for Skydeck. For Skydeck too, um, I do think they also look for, ultimately um, look for specific founders that A, have that drive, that conviction, can make the right decisions at key moments, but are still very open to feedback. Because at the end of the day, I think if any feedback is coming from investors, the interests are aligned. And so it's not really like me against the the entrepreneurs. It's, you know, us. So how can we make this successful together? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's an, a really interesting point that you're making at the end, because I've coached a lot of entrepreneurs and been on boards where, you know, I, Felt like I was a translator between or an interpreter between the the other investors and and the entrepreneur because you know they they were saying the same words but had completely different meanings a lot of times and um, I did I used to do a presentation called entrepreneurs are from Venus investors are from Mars just because of that reason but you know one of the things we do try to coach our our student entrepreneurs on is this ability to remain coachable and to be open and to consider new perspectives. And it's really interesting to hear, you know, that you put that into action. And at the end of the day, it is about the person, right? Uh, And uh, the founding team, because they're either going to be able to make it work or not. Um, So, so that's the hockey, the jockey and the horse, right? That everybody talks about investing in. So let's talk a little bit about some other factors. Product market fit is probably one of the big factors too that that we have to that we see our entrepreneurs um you know focusing on trying to understand what the right market for their product is and getting customer validation um do you have any thoughts on that in terms of a startup how to think about that and how to how to um you know approach that very critical stage and aspect of of a startup Absolutely. So I've seen kind of two very broad groups in terms of this particular topic of finding product market fit. One is the group that does a lot of research, preliminary research, and never really gets to execute that because they're constantly, and the research can be never ending. The other group is a group that does some very high level research and jumps in and starts implementing. And I think the latter group, most of the time, is incredibly successful in terms of finding that fit because that fit, in my personal opinion, my personal um, experience, comes from that customer interaction. The more companies are able to get their feet wet and actually experiment with hearing the customer pain points and implementing on them and really refining and honing the product to that customer, I think those particular startups are the most successful in terms of 
finding that fit. Now let's come back to the drawing table and figure out how to scale it. Because I do think there's a lot to be said. I, I always tell startups, I'm like, you know, you know, in theory, what you're going to present to the customer, but trust me, you're going to be incredibly shocked in terms of A, how the customer ends up interacting with your product. And you're going to find bugs that you never, ever found before, just because they have a completely different way of interacting with your product. And B, you're going to actually find so much more, so many more features or so many more or many different directions that you can develop the product into that if you were kind of sitting in your own office trying to kind of come up with these ways, you would have never thought about it just because you're not really in the shoes of the customer. So I think I would just go for, go for it, test it, talk to the customers, get that feedback implemented, create a feedback back loop, and then figure out how to scale it. Yeah, don't wait too long to get it out there, right? And get that feedback. That's that's great, great advice. So, uh, you know, we a lot of our listeners are students. A lot of them are, are aspiring entrepreneurs. I know we've got some that are at the stage where they love to connect uh, with with a firm like yours that could help them uh, build their, um, you know, their vision. What uh, what do you all look for in terms like what's your ideal company when it comes in? Absolutely. Or, or a company and founder. What, what's the stage of, of, you know, the development and, and what are some of the key things that you look at? Absolutely. So um, I would say with our stage investment stage, um, we invest very little checks at angel stage and then we do pre-seed and seed investments. Um, and with our new fund, we are going to do series A and B as well. Um, with the founders and the companies, I would say it's in two folds, only because deep tech usually takes a lot of um, upfront investment in terms of R&D. So with deep tech only, we are very, we're totally okay with pre-revenue, maybe, you know, MVP um, investment in terms of, you know, where the company is at with product development. With everything else, with SaaS, um, with consumer tech, with, um, you know, crypto, we do look for traction, some existing traction, maybe some revenue or pilots, even if there are unpaid pilots. That, I think, um, creates a very clear path to revenue generation, hopefully profitability. We also look for very strong unit economics. So, um, we look for founders that are incredibly smart in terms of finding a very efficient way of running their businesses and being incredibly um, conscious of you know their their burn rate, their costs, and building really lean teams and building out. And I think in this environment, especially um, where you know a lot of capital in the private markets are also drying up our particular companies have not really felt it just because they have had these really tight practices of managing their businesses. And so, and they have, you know, um, a lot, a lot of runway. And so I think planning for that and finding these founders who are constantly thinking about, not just about growing their businesses, but also growing it very efficiently. So mm -hmm. that's one. Um, in terms of the personality, we look for um, founders that are, yes, open to feedback, but also experts in that particular space. So for me personally, because our 
investment areas are, you know, still, you know, they're, they're verticals, but they're quite broad. So if I am, for example, investing in ad tech, and I personally don't necessarily have that very in-depth background, I look for the entrepreneur who paints a very detailed picture of the industry for me so that I can trust them in what they are, what problems they're solving today and how they're going to turn that into a very profitable business in the future. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, I think experts in those industries, we look for that. Obviously, in terms of personalities, being very open, um, being open to feedback, um, grit is a huge um, um, behavioral um, quality we look for, um, people that just do not give up because at the end of the day, we invest so early that um, I would say 80% of the weight is placed on the founder's capability to execute. So um, that's another one, um, energetic founders. Um, I think this is a business that you, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you kind of have to be a very driven person and not only for yourself, but for many people that you're surrounded by, whether they are your employees, um, you know, your shareholders, your investors, your advisors. Um, I think everybody's looking to you to bring that energy to the table and bring that drive and be the one who is going to make it in this business. So um, I think on a, on a personal quality level, we, we look for that. And that can be a very lonely place to be sometimes, right? At, at the, <laughs> when so many people are depending on you and a, very challenging. Yeah, very challenging. So so team or no team in these kinds of companies, what do you think works best? Uh, do you usually find that you have to help founders build out a team? And uh, if so, you know, what, what do they look for? Or do you think teams are usually a problem for them? Um, so if I'm understanding... The question correctly do you mean like do we help them create teams or not is that yes yes and what what do they look for and and um and when i say team or no team it is it um what do you think about bringing on a partner let's put it that way probably rather than team you know founding partners yes um so to be completely honest in none of the our portfolio companies we've done that before so we usually find Team, core teams that are already functioning and have, um, you know, advanced to create the product, launch the product, hopefully generate some revenue from the product, and then we fund them. Um, in terms of the larger scale, I do think um, perhaps maybe I can comment on the coaching part where our portfolio companies are kind of in twofold. One you know, group is probably, you know, the second time founder, third time founder, or, you know, a very mature founder who knows exactly what they are doing and, you know, knows operationally um, exactly what they're looking for. And they just need the capital in order to implement. And every now and then we kind of have an update, and, but then their heads down executing. So that's one group. And we do have a second group, which, you know, they're probably first time founders. They're a little bit younger um, and they're still learning um, some of the best practices in terms of, you know, how to run a startup, how to fundraise, how to, you know, do different um you know, I don't know, customer acquisition, how to, how to sell, how to do this, do that. So with them, I think we do a lot more hands-on coaching on a regular basis. And um, I would say extended team building is sometimes part of it. So for example, if they're looking for a head of marketing, a head of sales, a head of engineering, um, but not necessarily like the core core team. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, to kind of switch gears a little bit, it's really exciting for me to see a young woman in this uh, role because I know the number of VCs, female VCs, is still relatively small. How does, uh, tell me about that. Do, do you see an increasing number of women in, in VC roles? And, um, you know, what are your thoughts about the future for young women uh, that might have an interest in that, in that field? Absolutely. Um, so I do see a greater number of emerging uh, women managers, which is really great. Um, and maybe I'm part of that group. Um, so as an emerging fund manager, I do firmly believe that in order to empower women-led companies, we do need more women investors. Um, whether you know that's on the money management side or on the LP side, I think um, you know going in with a mission to empower women is really important. And I'm starting to see a movement, but the numbers are still quite skewed. And I think this is a challenge for many companies out there still. Where um, it's so interesting, like even when I was raising money um, from for my particular company. Um, it was astonishing how that the, my target audience and my target market in terms of my customers, a lot of fashion designers, were women. And I was trying to pitch this opportunity to men who honestly just, I don't know like if, if they ever you know, fully understood the magnitude and, um, and the actual pain points and the problems within certain industries that are led by women, by women and are incredibly influential industries. So I do think, um, you know, to come back to your question, it's really important to have women investors because, A, some industries are predominantly dominated by women. Others, I think women are, you know, still a huge player, whether directly or indirectly in other industries that may not kind of have women as their top leaders. So I do think in order to empower them even, even further, we do need more women fund managers. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great point. And I think, you know, it, it's really interesting. Do you, what percentage would you guess um, of the founders that you see are women? Because historically women, the number of women in, in these, the space that you're in has been small as well. Correct. Um, so to be completely honest, I see more women co-founders than founders. Um, especially in the deep tech area, especially in enterprise SaaS, a lot of, and in crypto, actually, um, a lot of, I would say, very like male-dominated industries are still very much male-dominated. Um, from what I see, I want to say less than 5% of the founders I see are women. And I also have to say that m- maybe this is a little bit of a... Um, skewed kind of percentage based on my particular visibility into the deals that I've come across. Um, But some of the, I would say the majority of the deals I've seen from women founders haven't necessarily been IP driven. And so that usually means, um, you know, perhaps they've just been a different play on an existing product out there. Or, um, or a different kind of like an exact play with a rebranding of the same solution. So sometimes um, I do see that and I do a lot of coaching um, with women to say, okay, well, you know, let's take it a step further. Let's 
differentiate you. Let's, you know, put position the company in a way that has a higher chance for funding, has a higher chance for growth, has a higher chance. Because I do now understand what the other side of the table um, thinks and how they think. So how can we position this? And not to say that the market isn't large enough for everybody to coexist, but how can we reposition this to capture the greatest value? Sure, sure. And, you know, one of the reasons this is especially interesting to me is because for probably eight years, I've been working with a group of women, uh, helping women who are doing amazing research in universities. But if you look at the the, the number of patents that they have um, and their, their um, steps towards commercializing the, what they're working on on the bench, um, you know, those numbers are still really small. And so, you know, a lot of what we've seen with the work that I've been doing is, is you know, partly confidence. And so I, I, I'm kind of interested in your comment that they come in as co, co-founders rather than founders. And I think there's a lot we can do to help empower women. Um, and, and it's not just women, empower everyone, but making sure that we're not missing certain groups um, because they lack the confidence or the, 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 the self-confidence or self-efficacy to, to take the steps. So I, I really appreciate your insights on that, and thank you for sharing them. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'd loved it, loved it, and I know we could talk a lot longer, but uh, I know you've got lots to do, and and I just kind of wanted to pull it together. I always like to ask my guests, and in in your case especially, since you're coaching and mentoring and investing in startups, if you had one piece of advice, and I know that's tough to pick one, but one piece of advice that you would leave with our listeners, um, who many of whom are interested in starting companies as you have and raising money um, and building their dream, their entrepreneurial dreams, what would that advice be? Um, I know it may sound a little cliche, uh, but it's incredibly true. And I firmly believe in it. Um, so I would honestly say, find your passion. And I mean, passion, something that keeps you up at night, something that you constantly think about or doesn't feel like work. Find that and find a product that is centered around that passion or find a purpose and work on that because I think entrepreneurship is an incredibly tough journey. Every day you wake up to a hundred different problems that didn't exist the previous day. Um, And it's a huge, I would say emotional roller coaster more than anything. So if that passion doesn't exist, it's going to slowly eat away at you and it's going to become this incredibly painful mental game. So just find your passion, stay focused and bring your best energy to the game every single day. And hopefully that'll be the recipe to your success. (laughs) I think it's great advice and I don't think we can hear it too much. It's a great reminder. So thank you for sharing that. Ferial, this has been wonderful to have you. Where can our listeners find out more about you or your business, maybe connect online? Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, So I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Ferial Ferdosi, and I'm on Twitter. Same thing. My handle is Ferial Ferdosi um, or yeah, any other social media platform um, that they're on, but LinkedIn and Twitter are my primary. 
Thank you, Fariel. You have a great rest of the day and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.